0: Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now. now where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham.
1: I always smile when I hear that intro. That's the voice of my co-producer and the VP at World Talk Radio Voice America, Ryan Treasure. I love the reverb on that, Ryan. Welcome, 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 welcome. Our topic today is ripped literally from the headlines. It might scare some of you a little bit, but it's the real world in which we live. No, we're not talking politics, but you may think think there's a little political overtone to some of the statements my guests are going to make. So let's see what we've got here. I have a quote from webmd.com and it says contact tracing. Yep, that's our topic. Contact tracing is essentially detective work. And they also say one of the oldest public health tactics dating back centuries. Who knew? Now I have a quote from cnn.com and this apparently is from the CDC. Public health staff work with a patient To help them recall everyone with whom they have had close contact during the time frame while they may have been infectious. And this is referring to COVID-19, the novel coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, the current global health pandemic. To protect patient privacy, contacts are only informed they may have been exposed to a patient with the infection, but not the identity of the patient. Okay, let that sink in. Now I have a quote from ZDNet.com. Gathering information about people's geolocation and other personal data to aid management of the pandemic risks infringing on our individual privacy more than ever before. And a professor named Ross Anderson said, we may never get rid of it. I just read in the paper yesterday, there's a live theater in Seoul, Korea, and here's what they're doing. The protocols mandated by the Korean Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are strict but not particularly space age. Before entering the theater, audience members are sprayed with a light mist of disinfectant. Thermal sensors take each person's temperature and everyone fills out a questionnaire about symptoms and recent places they visited so they can be notified of any exposures they may have had through the country's contact tracing app. Just let that sink in. I have a panel of four wonderful experts. They're people who know all about this a lot more than I do. Excuse me, we're welcoming back I got all choked up when I say her name, Heather Fetterman and Big ID is back with us, Joe Jerome at Common Sense Media, Sarah Collins, a newcomer to the show at Public Knowledge Special, welcome to you, Sarah, and Kenisa Ahmad at Aliada is back, welcome back, Kenisa, and they're going to talk about these privacy issues on, we know where you were last night, we know where you are right now, contact tracing, and your future. Welcome, 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 I'm Bonnie D. Graham, happy to have you here. This is Technology Revolution, the future of now, and the future minutes, we'll be saying a greeting from our new sponsor, Molecule. I'll tell you all about them at about 20 after. So let's go around the table and get introductions. Heather Fetterman, welcome back. How have you been? I want you take two minutes and reintroduce yourself in case there's one person out there who doesn't remember who you are. We can't have that. Heather, welcome. Uh, thanks, Bonnie, for having me again. It's
2: nice to be here For those of you, I guess, who I haven't uh, podcasted with yet, my name is Heather Fetterman. I'm the Vice President of Privacy and Policy at Big ID, where I manage and lead initiatives around privacy evangelism, product innovation, and uh, function as our data protection officer. And if you haven't heard of Big ID, we were founded in 2016, a Series C startup, and we sit at the Center of Privacy, Security, and Data Governance from data discovery to deep data intelligence with policy management. And in terms of the topic that we're discussing today, I think the four of us have been pretty involved from the sense of using technology for contact tracing initiatives. So um, authorities are looking at using mobile apps. Apple and Google have been investing in a a framework that they could do together. there's some deep privacy concerns here as well, because as you are keeping track of someone's movements for public safety purposes, which is understandable, we're already starting to see how this could be used for secondary purposes and more subversive purposes, such as some of the protesting that is happening today in America. There are already States calling for using contact tracing to track protester affiliations. And that brings me some, gives me deep concern,
1: which is why I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Thank you, Heather. Thank you very much. There, there is concern. I think anybody who's aware of it, we remember probably a couple of years ago when parents were using GPS on their children's phones to see if they were really in school or whether they were ditching is the word to go to the movies. I think some of you may remember that and the concerns about it it was a husband or a wife or, or another relationship tracking where you were going. And that was probably the precursor of contact tracing, but it was for personal social use. It wasn't on a pandemic level. So thank you for that great introduction, Heather. Let's move around the table to Joe Jerome. Joe, talk to us. What have you been up to and introduce yourself and what's your relationship to this topic, please?
3: Thanks again for the invitation. Um, so I actually work on state-based policy at Common Sense Media, uh, which is a national nonprofit focused on the digital well-being of kids and families online. So it, it's absolutely correct that there's been a long history of, of individuals and family members using devices to track other family members. Um, and that's still going on um, <laughs> many parents try to do that as a safety and security measure um, so you know we were most of us were on the show a couple of months ago and I think at that point we were still trying to adjust to what this new normal is and I think the reality is now more evident that we face a future where internet access and availability of technology, is going to be more important than ever before, Um, and that, unfortunately, the resources and the ability of state governments, and and even to some extent the federal government, to regulate in that space is going to be really, really limited. Um, This is sort of required me to sort of redefine my job on the spot as we look at a situation where state governments are facing multi-billion dollar budget deficits and the ability to sort of actually prioritize privacy is going to be tough and when I say privacy I think you know we use that word to mean so many different things um, but I think privacy really brings to mind a couple of different aspects. That's you know ethical uses of information, um, data security, actually keeping this stuff secure and protected, and then other types of data protections and controls for users. Um, I think these are gonna be really important issues to consider. Um, you know, I say that because I, I, you know, privacy means a lot to me. Whether that actually becomes top of mind to policymakers and lawmakers, um, that's really unclear. Particularly when we're facing a really chaotic situation at the moment.
1: Thank you, Joe. When we talk about privacy, it brings to mind the issue of social media. Going back to before contact tracing people have been sharing where they are, where they're going on social for years without even realizing it. Think of all the the parents and the families. Oh, we can't wait to go on our vacation to the Bahamas. Signal to thieves, my house is empty. Figure out where they live. Or look at our new baby and we have a newcomer and that means maybe a lot of gifts are going to be arriving, a lot of packages at the door, porch thievery, right? So we have been sharing. And, And Joe, my question is, Didn't we give up privacy in a huge way in the past maybe five to 10 years with the advent of everybody wanting to be on social media and not realizing the impact? Just a a quick question. What do you think, Joe?
3: Well, I I think that oversimplifies it. And I think that's a narrative that large tech companies and business interests and even to some extent law enforcement and government like to embrace. Uh, I think if you ask the average everyday person... Privacy means a whole lot to them. Uh, people, people really don't like the concept and idea of being tracked at all times. And there's plenty of research to suggest that that ha- actually has serious chilling effects um, on free expression, personal autonomy, that, that shouldn't be understated.
1: Okay, fair enough. I'll go with the oversimplification. Thank you for that. Let's move around the table. Our newcomer, Sarah Collins, I can see her because we're all on Zoom and we can see each other, which is a wonderful enhancement of the radio experience. People used to say, how can I talk if I can't see you? Well, now we can. Sarah Collins, welcome and please introduce yourself and give us a little insight into what your relationship is with this topic. Sarah.
4: Hi, Bonnie. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Yeah, so I'm a policy counsel at Public Knowledge, and we are a tech policy um, nonprofit. I focus specifically on privacy. And at the beginning of the year when I was hired, I thought I was going to be doing, like a lot of people in this room, federal privacy law. Aren't we going to have our big comprehensive privacy law happening right now? Well, I think the pandemic has changed that So now what I'm finding where the conversation we're having at the federal level is about privacy, specifically within COVID, but also we're having to answer basic privacy questions that a federal law would have given us if we had something comprehensive. So my job has sort of become twofold to talk about the really specific questions about Collecting data for public health purposes and how that should be used and thinking about the necessity of it and the risks and benefits, but also having to still educate people on what basic privacy protection should look like. So I think this is a really interesting time to be doing my work right
1: now. Very interesting. Well, as they say, surprise, surprise, Sarah, welcome to your new next normal slash I call it the new abnormal. Sarah, what's your thought about contract tra- contact tracing? Were you surprised when I read that blurb from the theater in Seoul, Korea, not just about spraying people with disinfectant, never heard that one before, but about before you can go in, you have to fill out a whole list of where you've been in your context. What's your thought on that? Yeah, so again, that does give me some
4: pause. I'd want to know, first off, what the theater is doing with that information, how long they're keeping it, who has access to it. These are all sort of basic data protection or privacy questions. And again, you could just think of it as a low-tech version or a analog version of like a digital like app that maybe would do it from your phone, which both has their own privacy and security um, benefits
1: and risks. Thank you very much. Welcome, Sarah Collins. We're delighted to have you. And now let's go to Kanisa Ahmed. Kanisa, welcome back. How are you? And reintroduce yourself. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Lonnie.
5: Thank you uh, for having me back. My name is Kenisa Ahmed. I'm a co-founder and partner at Alida. We are a boutique privacy and security consulting firm in San Francisco. Uh, we're a team of lawyers, technologists, and business people who integrate privacy into emerging technologies. And help companies understand what that means for their business. I'm also also a co-founder of Women's Security and Privacy, a nonprofit organization based in San Francisco. We have affiliates in New York and DC and in the UK. Um, I'm really uh, glad to be here for this round too. I think we were just scratching the surface on location and tracking issues when we spoke last in April, and so much has changed between now and then and only two months. So I'm eager to dig into these these matters a bit more. Um, specifically in the context of current events today, including recent protests against police brutality.
1: Thank you very much. said, does this scare you, this idea of contact tracing? You said we just scratched the surface. We did something about... about um, the bigger picture of this topic about two months ago with Joe was here and you were here and Heather Fetterman was here Does this this scare you? Do you think this is something that we should all say wait a minute? I'm not going to do that. I, I and and that's a question for the whole panel We'll get to that later when we go to the predictions Do we have the right? Of course we do and and Sarah might be able to talk about this and Joe do we have the right to say? No, I'm not going to that theater because I don't want to fill out a contact tracing sheet. I don't want my information in your database. I don't trust what you're going to do with it or who will see it, how long you'll store it. All good points Sarah made, gave, shared with us. So can you say any thoughts about that? Well, I don't think I'd go
5: as far to say that we shouldn't do it. I do think that contact tracing is really critical to to stopping the, the, the stem and the spread of, of, of COVID-19. Um, But I do think that we need to think about this in terms of not just privacy and security, but trust and how to facilitate and build public private trust, trust models, Um, because without that, you know, which is critical to contact tracing, I don't think that we'll um, see the end uh, at any time soon.
1: Thank you very much. Quick comment from Joe. Uh, what do you think? Should, if people aren't comfortable with it, should they just not go places that require the well, tracing information?
3: Well, I mean, that that you know that that's always the case, and I think that's mm-hmm. sort of the situation. I mean, that's that's the status quo, and I think you know I hope we can get into this. Um, but I actually think that this highlights the real problem of thinking about privacy as a question of consent, like whether people can say yes or no. Um, I, I think for average people, it may, that makes sense. You, you should you should ask me and get my permission before I'm allowed to do X Y. you're allowed to do X Y and Z with my information, um, but this is a situation where that highlights the absurdity of that. A, what does your consent mean here? If you say no, you just can't go places physically. Well, that seems foolish, and then it also raises a larger question, which takes us out of the realm of privacy to just larger public health questions, should people be given this consent? If if one or two people start saying no, does that reduce the efficacy of our ability to try, try to stop the spread of disease? I, I mean, I think that this just highlights how we continually talk about privacy as a question of getting user consent and giving people control over their information when that doesn't really answer the larger questions about what we what at the end of the day we want out of how data is being used.
1: Thank you. Sarah Collins, thoughts? Yeah. I also would highlight in the case
4: of the theater, like not going is sort of a kind of reasonable choice. You can choose not to go to the movies or whatever, but like change it to a grocery store. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly this gets to be it's not consent anymore. Like you have to because I need food or let's say your employer is like, well, you either consent to having this tracking app or you don't work that's not a consent model, that's coercive. So I think Joe is right. Consent is not gonna get us very far when we talk about privacy and security and public trust. It has to be about what are we using the data for, how long are we keeping it, and how are we making sure it's not being subverted for purposes we didn't expect.
1: Trust comes back. Heather Fetterman, I didn't forget you. Of course we wanna hear what you have to say about this. Heather, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with what, everyone has said so far is that I I think we just are relying way too much upon these consent models in terms of privacy and that consent is not really at play here because you need user adoption for contact tracing to actually work. Um, But because there's such a breakdown in trust, that's unlikely to get as many people as you actually need here and I think it goes to Sarah's point that, you know, it's not just consent. We actually have to make sure we have the right protections in place into how the data is being used, how long we're keeping it for, limitations, and I just, we're not seeing that, so it just, it brings up these concerns.
3: I I also think we have a question, an issue of just definitions. Um, You know, we're already talking about what does consent mean, Um, and you were asking about contact tracing. Well, what exactly do we mean by contact tracing? Is it just manual contact tracing? Is it mobile, like automated app contact tracing? And then to sort of muddy the waters even further, which I think really has changed the situation over the past week, was you had law enforcement in Minnesota come out and say, or basically analogize what they were going to do to be tracking protesters to contact tracing. That isn't what they're doing. They were doing basic criminal investigation, but they're using, or I guess frankly co-opting a word that was used in a different context Which just sort of, again, makes it very confusing to normal people to actually describe what are we talking about and what protection should be in place, which I think, to what everyone is saying, undermines anybody's ability to trust any of this.
1: Good points all, and context seems to be very fluid right now, if I can add that. I want to welcome our brand new sponsor to the show. So everybody listen up because this may interest you, Heather and Joe and Sarah and Kenisa. Our sponsor is Molecule. I'll spell that M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. That's a new way to spell it air purification reinvented, and we all need that for every room in any home. Let me tell you about it. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. It's not just an innovation on existing technology. It's a scientific breakthrough in air purification, and I'm going to say it's about time. Their core technology called Pico P-E-C-O, or photoelectric chemical oxidation. That's a lot of words. Actually destroys harmful pollutants in the air like viruses. That's what we're living with right now. Bacteria, mold, and chemicals instead of just collecting them on filters, which most purifiers do. Molecule air pur- purifiers are designed to help protect homes, businesses, and medical spaces so you know They're destroying the pollutants and providing you with clean air. With so many of us spending so much more time at home, yes, 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 I'm looking at my panelists all from home offices and me too, clean indoor air is more important than ever. Molecules PICO technology meets the performance requirements in FDA guidance for use in helping reduce the risk of exposure to SARS-CoV-2 the COVID-19 virus, which is on everybody's minds, and in healthcare settings. In independent testing, a molecule air purifier was shown to reduce the concentration of MS2, a SARS-CoV-2 proxy virus, by over 99.9% in one hour, and that's a number we all love. While it's important to maintain other good preventative practices, this is an extra layer of virus protection for your spaces. And guess what? it doesn't look like other air purifiers. Molecule is beautifully designed. They say, think of it as, get this, the apple of air purifiers. And we all know what good design (laughs) apple does. Not only is the technology inside it revolutionary, the units look sleek and modern, made with premium materials, minimalist sensibilities. Molecule complements any room in your office or home while destroying viruses, mold, allergens, and bacteria discreetly and effectively. There are four models. Molecule Air is for rooms, large rooms up to 600 square feet. Molecule Air Mini for little rooms up to 250 square feet. Molecule Air Mini Plus helps protect small rooms with a particle sensor in auto-protect mode, which adjusts the fan speed based on the sensor. And Molecule Air Pro RX is FDA-cleared as a 510K Class two medical device intended for medical purposes to destroy bacteria and viruses in the air. And you're all wondering, what do I do next, Bonnie? Well, I have a special offer for my listeners. For 10% off your first Molecule Air Purifier order, Visit Molecule.com with a special code for my show. So it's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. And at checkout, enter the code for the show, TechRev. That's T-E-C-E. H-R-E-V. Currently shipping only to the U.S. and Canada, but they expect to expand. So that's Molecule, molekul com, and enter TechRev, T-E-C-H-R-E-V, at checkout. Thank you, Molecule. We're delighted to have you on board. Now it's time to get back to my panelists. We're talking about contact tracing today, and let's go quickly through the quotes my panelists sent me in advance. So Heather Fetterman has sent us a quote from Jiddu Krishnamurti, 1895 to 1986, Indian philosopher, speaker, and writer. That's all I'll say. And here's the quote: "If you can really understand the problem, the answer will come out of it because the answer is not separate from the problem." This sounds almost like a, uh, a conundrum or a. Uh, a never, never mind. There's a word for it. Heather, explain to me what does this have to do with our topic, please.
2: Yeah, well, I'm I'm a fan of Krishnamurti, even though it's totally different context. But I, 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 you know, I don't like talking about problems unless we can figure out what the solution is. So, you know, cause, and, and we have a habit of doing that where we'll just throw out, you know, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. Well, what can we actually do to help mitigate or fix the problem? And according to Krishnamurti, well, it's by actually looking at the problem that we can figure it out. So, I, you know, that's what I think. My, my hope is, is that with all these discussions that we're having here today and in general, that we actually can figure out together what is the right solution.
1: Thank you very much. And thank you for introducing me to Krishnamurti. I will take a look. Joe Jerome has sent us a quote from William Gibson, whose name gets bandied about all the time. William Gibson, very much alive and well-born in 1948. Joe, I get to call him a young man, or at <laughs> least... At least a peer, I'm not going to say anymore and indict myself on this one. He's an American-Canadian speculative fiction writer and essayist Credited widely with pioneering the science fiction subgenre known as cyberpunk. And those of you who don't know the name Gibson, he coined the term cyberspace. And he's famous for his short story, Burning Chrome, where the the term was first used that he wrote in 1982. And he's credited with renovating science fiction literature Back in the 80s, he also wrote the story Neuromancer in several novels. And his figurative subgenre is also known as steampunk. There we go. Here's the quote. This is a long one, Joe. I'm just going to read the first two sentences. We have no idea now of who or what the inhabitants of our future might be. In that sense, we have no future. Oh, my, Joe, this is deep. Talk to me. How'd you pick well, this one? <laughs> as you
3: mentioned, Gibson is sort of the creator of cyberpunk, which for folks that don't understand that that sort of brings together as a as a literary field discussions of advanced technology with dystopian futures. Um, So that tells you a lot of where my head space is at the moment. Um, So this quote is from the early aughts book called Pattern Recognition, um, which the the thrust of the novel is about our desire to find patterns and meaning in life even where there are none. Later on in the lengthy quote, which I apologize, I keep doing really long quotes in general. uh, The the passage speaks of the concept of, well, we don't have a future. All we really have is risk management, um, which I think is a phrase that I often hear, and I think everyone on this discussion often hears in the privacy and technology space. And so conversations of, we don't have a future, we just have risk management, um, that sort of seems depressingly apt at the moment. (laughs)
1: Thank you very much. I forgive you for long quotes. As long as I can pick one or two leading sentences out of the quote and make something important out of it. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. Sarah Collins has sent us a quote from John Green, the author of Looking for Alaska. And and Sarah, I have interviewed on my personal radio show, Read My Lips, the authors of books about about explorers in in, uh, Antarctica and explorers in the first governor of Alaska. And I said, Well, Looking for Alaska, it must be a historical explorer book. Not even close. The award-winning, genre-defining debut from John Green. We're talking about a book, a novel called Looking for Alaska. It's the number one international best-selling author. He is of The Turtles All the Way Down and The Fault in Our Stars, I think we know that was a very well-received movie. So let me read the blurb from Amazon about this book very briefly to set it up. And then Sarah, I'll read the quote and Sarah will tell us. So first drink, first prank, first friend, first love. Last words. Mile Halter is fascinated by famous last words and tired of his safe life at home. He leaves for boarding school to seek what the dying poet, Francois Rabelais, that's FedEx at my door, I'm not answering it, called The Great Perhaps Much Awaits Miles at Culver Creek. Sarah, the quote is imagining the future as a kind of nostalgia. I'm gonna let you take it over and talk while I answer the door because this is an important package. Go ahead. Yeah, so again, this is a YA novel and I have a
4: very soft spot in my heart for young adult fiction. And what the novel is about is the sort of idea as a teenager that when you're an adult or when you're 18, everything's going to change. And I think that's really useful in the tech space because oftentimes when we talk about policy, well, if this one thing happens or if this one innovation, then everything will suddenly change. And I think that sort of thinking about the future, thinking about a revolution really hampers how you can fix the present and hampers how you can make incremental changes for the better. Um, So that quote always speaks to me. because sometimes the way tech people talk about the future is kind of a nostalgia.
1: I love that. And by the way, Alaska in the title is Alaska Young, who will pull miles into her labyrinth (laughs) and catapult him into the great perhaps. I think panel, I think we're all living in the great perhaps right now. What do you think? Joe is nodding. Kenisa, you agree? We're living in the great perhaps. Heather? Yeah. that Sarah? Really, yeah. really, really cool quote. Thank you very much. I I might have to get the. Did you read the the book Looking for Alaska? Yeah, yeah, I like John Green. Very cool. I'm going to have to get that. I like that a lot. Thank you. I always love being introduced to new authors and thinkers and speakers and writers. Kenisa has sent us a quote from Nas. This is also new to me, Kenisa. Nas is Nasir bin Oludara Jones, born in 1973, definitely a kid, better known by a stage name Nas, N-A-S. He's an American rapper, songwriter, entrepreneur, and investor. He's the son of jazz musician Oleda- Oludara. He has released only 12 studio albums he's only earned 7 certified platinum and multi platinum in the US blah 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 and uh, he signed to Jeff Def Jam Records in 2006 i'm going to read the quote and this is really cool canisa you have to translate time is ilmatic keep static like wool fabric canisa is this another language help me out here <laughs> so this uh, th-
5: thanks for that background bonnie so this is a line from from one of the greatest rappers of all time, from one of the most poignant hip-hop albums of all time. Um, I like this quote not only because I'm a huge Nas fan, but also because I don't think there's a set meaning. You know, there's no dictionary or Wikipedia definition of this rhyme out there. It's up to the listener to to decipher and to unravel. So for this conversation, I take this line to mean that um, time is unchanging. It's static, not moving. So maybe there is no future. There is only now, this current state that we're all in. And today, with national upheaval over the death of George Floyd, with protests mounting across the U.S., clear that you know for some communities, very little has changed. Um, so I carry this theme into our discussion about privacy, contact tracing, and data protection amidst the civil
1: unrest that we're
5: experiencing.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you all. I'm very impressed with the creativity of your quotes. I really appreciate that. My panelists are all smiling. I love doing radio on Zoom where I can see everybody. This is really cool. Listeners, I wish you could too. Let's go to the predictions round of the show. This is where we're going to really dive in and see what our panelists think is happening any minute from now, any second from now. The show is technology revolution, the future of now. And as I like to tell people, and I close with the statement and Sarah, you'll hear me say this at the end. If people tell you the future is already here, they're wrong. That was yesterday's future. We're all here being part of making today's future happen and we're going to make it a good one. So Heather Fetterman, I'm looking at prediction number two, because I like this one very much to the point here. You said in Hong Kong, those arriving in the airport are giving electronic tracking bracelets that must be synced to their home location through their smartphone's GPS signal. We may soon find this becomes the, quote, new normal, unquote, with travel. Scare me now. Heather Fetterman, talk to me.
2: Yeah, I think we're just seeing right now just a sense of where surveillance becomes normalized. At the beginning of this show, we were talking about how parents were tracking their kids, wherever they go. And we stick in chips in our dogs. And so it doesn't surprise me that we're doing this in Hong Kong to track you know, your, your movements. And I was talking with a friend of mine who's not in this field, but she said she would be totally fine with that if she could go to Hong Kong and walk around with this bracelet. And that's my concern is that we're okay with this. And, and if this is what can help, that's fine. But it just comes up to that question of, well, there's so many other subversive uses that could be done with the tracking bracelet that you're required to wear. So that that's why I'm really concerned about all of these various technologies and methods that we're talking about becoming normalized.
1: Isn't that interesting? Um, I, I recently read that, People are renting out with proper disinfecting, renting out apartments by the hour in Manhattan for people who are quote unquote stuck at home with family or they're alone and they want to get away for a couple of hours. You can actually do a rental of an hour or two someplace in Manhattan. I think it's downtown. It's like an Airbnb, but it's for the COVID environment and it will be guaranteed disinfected and clean just to get away. Now, what if you had a tracking bracelet and you didn't want anybody to know you were going off the grid to write poetry for an hour or eerie chocolate syrup out of the bottle and some. oh, I know you were at one, two, three, such and such street for two hours. We see it on the detective procedural TV shows all the time. We know about this. They track everywhere your credit card is used. They track the, the, uh, the information on your car when you go through toll booths. They track when you go to gas stations. So th- this really isn't that much new, but it might be impacting our right to some privacy, some isolation. Heather, any quick comment about that? Yeah, I I mean, I I think you brought up some various examples, and kind of to
2: Joe's point in the beginning is that, you know, when when it comes to privacy, it's not so simple. There's also a lot of context as to well, what, who do we need privacy from? So in your example, you know, and I, I told, I'm totally with that. of needing to go to get privacy <laughs> to an hour to you know, write poetry or just meditate or something. But then there's other uses. Okay. Well, if you're tracking my movements, what is the government doing with that? What are these corporations doing with that? And that's where I think these various privacy considerations come up. So someone might say, I have nothing to hide, but that could just be in one context of where they might have nothing to
1: hide. So it's just, it's very oversimplified, a lot of this. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for, for responding to my examples. Joe Jerome, I'm looking at prediction number two, because we've already covered the mm-hmm. concept of consent in the first one. So here, this is interesting. Joe says, biometric snake oil, and we'll have him explain exactly to younger listeners who might not know what the reference is. Biometric snake oil will spread wildly as a solution to the pandemic and inevitably lead to mission creep. Joe, I'm going to ask you what they do on the news. Please unpack this for us.
3: So I think this is probably a good segue from Heather discussing how, you know, Hong Kong wants to use stuff for secondary purposes. And I know other people, and I think Sarah is talking about concerns around mission creep. Um, So, I mean, obviously snake oil is just sort of People selling things that don't really work and solutions that will you know calm people's fears um, without actually delivering on, on what they are promise and I actually think biometrics are going to be the thing that explode here we, we're spending a lot of time talking about location but um, if you're a privacy advocate um, biometrics tends to go hand-in-hand hand with location in terms of discussions about what is either the most sensitive or the most controversial types of information collection going on right now um, And I think, you know, we're already seeing all sorts of biometrics vendors jumping into pandemic response, um, whether it's things like thermal imaging to try and predict if people have a temperature, unclear whether that actually works or is particularly Mm -hmm. effective around COVID, um, to deploying... facial recognition or facial analysis technologies um, in stores or elsewhere to try and reduce in-person contact. Oh, you know, we, we, you don't need to have workers engaging with people. You can just have screens. Um, and, and I think a lot of this stuff, you know, whether it's temperature checks, facial recognition, the whole shebang are all going to be rolled into one, like different products that, that stores and, you know, from my perspective, schools Um, are going to try and deploy as, as just sort of an attempt to solve this situation. Um, You know, there have been a whole lot of um, privacy advocates, um, organizations like the American Civil Liberties Union that have been fighting facial recognition for years. And, um, you know, I think we're really going to start seeing that stuff happen in schools. Um, You know, some school districts have already acquired this technology. I think it will be a really big use case of, how college campuses react in the fall? Um, you know, we're already seeing colleges trying to sort of figure out how they can reopen their campuses, and the way to do that is going to be with bracelets and facial recognition, a whole lot of technologies that may work, um, but probably won't, and are probably going to cost people an arm and a leg in the process.
1: Thank you very much, Joe, and everybody we've been talking about for for years now on my business, my enterprise radio shows. I do also on this channel talking about customer experience. We're living in an era where companies need to be customer centric. What is the perception of your product and your service? How are you delivering? Is this in the make for me? I want one pair of $5,000 sneakers with diamonds on the toe and on the heel. And then you can go back to making 50,000 of your everyday sneakers for the rest of everybody. And now customer experience will take on a whole new meaning. As as Joe, as you said, maybe we will go back to, to bots and to screens. And when somebody says, you can't come into my store unless you let me take your temperature, put a tracking bracelet on you, fill out a form, it's going to change that experience that's beyond what the company represented itself as. What is customer centricity anymore? It's health centricity. It's safety centricity question of privacy, question of the brand. I think it's going to neutralize what we have considered a company, a product's brand that's special to them. I think it's going to almost democratize branding because we have to do all of that before we can even go into the store. I'm pontificating a little bit here. Let me go, Sarah Collins, your prediction number one. I like this. Let me read it. You say, the discussion about COVID surveillance tech seems to have skipped a step. We're so focused on making sure whatever is implemented is, privacy protective, we haven't even stopped to figure out what will be effective. And then you add, it seems that only, everybody listen up, only after the crisis has passed will we judge whether certain technologies were even necessary. Provocative. We like that, Sarah Collins. Talk to me.
4: Yeah. So, and I'm I, i I'm fully um, at fault in this. Something happens. Google and Apple announces their API to do exposure notification, or a biometric company releases a, an app that says they, they can scan faces and tell people's temperature and make sure that nobody who's sick enters your warehouse. And immediately where I go is, what's happening with that data? How is that being used? Or how can we make it better? And the first question, and the first question for all these policymakers and business owners should actually be, does this thing even work? And because we're in a space where we want to do something like inaction is seen as unacceptable that we're just taking actions and only after, because hopefully this will pass in 18 months, two years, will there be enough time and enough like uh, data to really assess what worked and what didn't. And unfortunately, that means we're going to be exposing ourselves to all these different types of tech just because we wanted to do something. I think Joe bringing up schools was really a useful analogy. I also used to work in the child privacy space. And what happened after Parkland was a whole bunch of schools bought facial recognition tech. There was no demonstration that'd be effective in a school shooting environment. And the use cases didn't make sense for the things that they were trying to prevent. But I had heard from schools, well, I have to do something. And I think we're in that space right now. Well, I have to do something. Let's worry
1: about whether it works later. Very interesting. Anybody want to risk re- Joe, uh, you've been summoned by Sarah. There, Do you <laughs> want to respond to that before I move on? Can no, you next? I, ahead, I, I,
3: I would. I would echo that one hundred and ten percent. I mean, the wor- the the phrase I always want to say derisively is tech tech solutionism. Um, you know, we re- there's there's such a for a long time, there was such a such admiration for Silicon Valley and the magic of being able to solve problems with technology um, that we've sort of been enchanted to this idea that you can solve things with tech. And you know, in a pandemic, which is you know, like this is a virus, this is a situation that calls for heavy science. It's probably not something that can be solved by companies that are are generally fueled by advertising dollars. You're just seeing all these ideas and things being thrown at a wall um, without really interrogating whether they'd actually work.
1: Thank you very much. Good point. Sarah, anything back to him? I'm ready to talk to Kinesa. But oh, no. That. like completely agree 100%. Good. Good. We like agreement on this. Interesting. Very provocative. Thank you, Sarah. We like to think outside the box. Kenisa, I'm looking at your prediction number three. You knew I was going to pick this. Kenisa sent me a term. I had no idea what it was, and I spent time last night Googling it all over the place, and the term is Karen. Apparently, Karen is a meme, and uh, she said coronavirus is bringing out the Karen in all of us. I actually read that. So here's the prediction from Kenisa, and you're going to explain in your eye, and everybody's smiling because you all know, and I didn't Karen, she says, neighborhood and city surveillance apps will further enable Karen, in quotes, policing and surveillance. Ooh, I have a neighbor named Karen. Should I tell her she's a meme? Go ahead, Kanisa, talk to me. <laughs>
5: <Yeah>. <laughs> so maybe it, it'd be helpful to set the stage uh, uh, with, uh, again, current events. Um, so about a week and a half ago, maybe more than that, um, a black man, Christian Cooper, was bird watching in Central Park, asked a white woman to leash her dog as required. Um, She refused. She then called the police, fading fear, and the encounter was captured on video. Now, Amy Cooper has since been dubbed the Karen type of uh, individual that through which this thread of privilege and entitlement runs. Um, And there have been so many of these incidents over the last few years. Um, Amy Cooper used her phone to call the police, but she could have easily used the neighborhood social networking app to make this report. Um, so if you're not familiar, examples of, of these apps include Nextdoor, Citizen, um, Amazon bring, brings neighbors. And um, to join, I think you have to prove that you live in a, a specific neighborhood. And some of these app features are relatively benign and, and welcome. They help individuals you know, publish information about Local events, you can buy and sell goods. I see uh, a lot of like cat and dog pictures. (laughs) There's always like one neighbor that's baked too many cookies for friendly neighborhood pickup. Um, But the flip side is that these apps also enable crime monitoring and neighborhood surveillance. Um, They're well known for users posting alerts about car break ins and suspicious characters, quote unquote. Um, You know, I can report a a window smashing in real time, and this does happen a lot in, in my neighborhood. Um, So reporting and sharing all this information using these services is far easier than it used to be. Um, But these apps also are used to provoke fear around crime, which feeds into our existing biases and and racism. So they're not necessarily accurate crime reports um, because they reflect our biases. And they tend to criminalize people of color. Um, I live in San Francisco, homeless. Uh, there's, There's a huge homeless population. So, you know, often people who are noted as suspicious on these apps are, are people of color. Um, and again, the stereotyping is kind of well-documented across across these apps. So it's, it's not that you know, being called suspicious is, is itself the issue or the harm, but it can lead to, obviously, repercussions where people of color are more likely to be presumed criminals and they are more likely to be arrested or they're more likely to be killed, as we've seen with George Floyd and countless others which in turn reinforces this idea that people of color are criminals in the first place. So, and this is like just further exacerbated by these growing public-private partnerships between tech companies, like the private sector and public agencies. I think we'll see this, you know, continue to see this trend of, um, of, of opaque uh, partnerships with police and, 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 um, and these private companies and the use of these services to, to process um, crime reporting and I think just without huge conscious effort, this is going to feed into this biased crime reporting system.
1: Thank you, Kenisa. Very interesting. Think about contact tracing, possibly... Uh, if it was on the individuals who've been quote-unquote reported as suspicious. If we had contact tracing, you might be able to prove that they had nothing to do with it at all. It could work to their benefit if someone took the time to look at where they had been. But I'm going to leave that one alone. I want to get a couple more predictions in before we close. We've got about about nine, ten minutes left to the show. So, Heather Fetterman, I'm back to you. And prediction number three, you say employee monitoring initiatives will become more intrusive Hindering productivity and trust in people's employer. Ooh, Heather, talk to me.
2: Yeah, we're, we're already seeing this starting to happen, especially as employers think about, well, how can we have our employees safely come back into offices? So there's a lot of very um, intrusive technologies that they're considering. So doing facial recognition, doing thermal body temperature checking, so just these various sensors that we're considering using and even just tracking location movements within the office. The other thing that we have also seen an increase in is because we're all remote is that there's been a lot of usage of um, remote software. So tracking someone's movements um, on the keyboard, so um, keystroke logging, and are they being productive at all times and whatnot. And we've seen studies about how knowing that you're surveilled all the time can actually lead to um, less productivity in some ways or more stress and anxiety. So I'm concerned that this is something that's just going to become, it's kind of like what Sarah was saying, is that we're just saying that we're going to throw this against the wall because this is what we have to do. And really, are we proving that this is effective in terms of our, our public health or, I guess, our employee health and our productivity?
1: Thank you very much. Productivity is a huge issue right now, isn't it, Heather, with companies trying to reopen and how do you get back to the levels of how do you you get the productivity on your supply chain in order to be able to offer your goods and services and who is going to be working and can you have people working from home and where are they and how accountable are they? Joe, I know you had a comment for what Heather just brought up. Joe? Yeah,
3: I, I just want to say, I mean, I am am in, incredibly sympathetic to businesses trying to figure out a way to safely reopen their stores, their office environments. Um, but I think to sort of highlight what Sarah, when Sarah was introducing herself about the, the discussion that we were kicking off this year about federal privacy legislation, I think the fact that um, you know. The, the, the employers are going to be rolling out all sorts of really invasive ways to monitor their employees highlights the, the gaps or lack of privacy protections and laws in this country as a whole. Um, an- all of us on this panel can discuss just conversations around, quote, consumer privacy laws. Um, and these consumer privacy laws are focused on things like, what are Google and Facebook going to do, but almost never focus on protections or rights of employees versus their employers, and I think we all have to acknowledge that employers have a tremendous amount of power over their employees, and our unwillingness to engage on that issue and actually give employees firm rights um, is a real problem, and you know, if you talk to people in the civil rights community, they're very, very concerned that this is going to be used in ways that really harm vulnerable employees uh, and we're already seeing these disparities in our societies where all of the essential workers during this pandemic are, are largely or are majority communities of color um, whereas you have a lot of the, the talking heads that you know spew and, and this, is, this is all of us. We're all you know um, Caucasian people who get to hang out in an apartment um, and I think this highlights just a real real problem we have with our privacy laws in this country as a whole at Thank the state you. and federal level.
1: And Joe, I'm gonna go to your prediction number three, but before I do, uh, I know you're all aware of GDPR, which celebrated its second anniversary last week. That's the Global Data Protection Regulation in Europe. Uh, We like to say it reared its ugly ugly head, I think on uh, May 25th, uh, two years ago, and it impacted how I do my business radio shows. Everybody has to sign a consent form that they understand we're broadcasting their voice live. We're recording their voice for replay. We're using their picture and their bio in a globally available, accessible, searchable guest directory here on Voice America Radio. But there was also something in Europe called the right to be forgotten. And I'm sure all of you have heard of that, where you could say, remove me from your database. I don't want you keeping my email address. I don't want my picture anywhere. I don't and I'm wondering, I know that's a whole other show, but the right to be forgotten is that gone? And that's—I I don't even know if I want to talk about that because I don't think we have enough time. Joe, you. I think it's interesting pass?
3: that you say "ugly head." I think all of us might say that GDPR was a was a beautiful thing.
1: Okay. All right. Well, for those of us who had to do it administratively, <laughs> let me tell you, it took my company's uh, legal department two weeks. Two, I'm sorry, it took him six weeks to come up with a, a very, uh, Sarah smiling, uh, to come up with a, a very small print regulation on what I had to have everybody sign. We had to go back and put it in all the guest decks and in the consent forms, and everybody had to sign it. And if they didn't want to, we couldn't put them on a radio show. So that was the, shall we say, the, um, the administratively difficult part of it, Joe. I'll, I'll go you with that. Joe, let's look at prediction number three. You say social distancing maps and I I know you use maps rather than apps, and you'll tell us why, could become an unexpected killer app for augmented reality wearables. What does this mean? So I think we're already,
3: just quickly, we're already talking about what are employers going to do, what are people going to do as they try and engage back out in the real world. Last time I was on the show, I, I couldn't stop blabbing about my interests in augmented reality and virtual reality. And I, I think VR's telepresence, the, those applications in a pandemic are obvious, um, but I think we're, we're already seeing everything pointing to new AR-type wearables in the future, um, either from Apple or otherwise. And I actually think being able to map the real world and sort of being able to enforce social distancing bubbles could be a real killer app. Uh, I would point out that experiments with Google just released uh, a product called Sodar, which is a basic browser-based application that uses WebXR um, to offer a mobile augmented reality distance, so you can. Put up your phone and see how far you are away from different objects. Um, that's not super, you know, convenient. But you can imagine much more robust, like, signals appearing in future OSs and wearables. Um, and I certainly think that that's something employers are going to be deploying.
1: Thank you very much. Let's see if we can squeeze in two more predictions quickly, Sarah Cons, I'm looking at your prediction number three, a little bit of what we talked about, but I'd like you to articulate it very quickly. You say the adoption of these technologies is predicated on the fact that they will be disabled at the, quote, end of the pandemic. I don't know when that's going to be. Deciding when something is over is not cut and dry. Who gets to decide when it's over will be a huge public policy fight. Sarah, take 60 seconds to expand this, please. Yeah. So
4: right now where there's all sorts of different laws and regulations that are in place because of the pandemic, whether it's enhanced unemployment, there is a relaxation of certain regulations. There's also questions about these privacy regulations, uh, these privacy laws that have been introduced last till the end of the pandemic. So there's lots of different incentives to either keep the pandemic, the pandemic going, or to end it based on either cost or so they can keep data so that they could do research. And these different interests about when the pandemic is over will result in a really large policy fight because so many different policies at the moment hinge on us being in the middle of a pandemic. And I think right now, for I'm a privacy person, so that's all I really think about in the policy space, but there's lots of other policies that hinge on this designation. And this is going to be a the next big fight
1: is when it's over. Thank you very much. Kanisa. we're sneaking in one more. Prediction number four. I got 30 seconds for you. With students and going into remote learning, which we're into right now, taking hold, we'll see ubiquitous tracking, ubiquitous location tracking of students. This is something we're going to live with forever and ever. Kenisa, prediction, 30 seconds. What do you see?
5: Um, I, I, I think for sure. And we're going to see a huge increase in, in the tracking mechanisms that are used um, in school. And of course, as uh, Heather was mentioning before, workplaces, um, you know, educators have been tasked with this formidable uh, task of shifting to remote teaching and, and um, have scrambled to figure out how to use digital tools and, and online resources. And I think without, you know, training to evaluate technology in, in teaching and learning, um, adoption of certain technologies are, are going to put students in, in, in unsafe situations potentially and vi- certainly violate their privacy rights. Um, you know, this isn't going away. In some ways, it's democratizing. Otherwise, it's, you know, highly unequal. Uh, um, so I think that we'll see, you know, increased tracking of um, attendance and, comp- like, use of, of um, tracking of devices. Um, we know that universities are starting to use geofencing I and mean, who knows if everyone's going back to schools but we we're seeing this at higher ed levels already um, and of course I think we are going to see integration of, of biometrics um, as Joe was describing earlier so I think I uh, want to make it in under the 30 seconds but there's a lot to come and to unfold in that area.
1: Thank you, Kenisa. I can see parents disabling their children's tracking bracelets saying, get out of the house, damn it. We've had enough lessons for today. I don't want you to go, <laughs> gonna go out, take three walks around the block, take your bike out, and maybe play basketball with the kids across the street without any, everybody touching the basketball because I need some peace and quiet in the house. So I could see that happening too. <laughs> I want to do a quick reminder <laughs> no. of our new our new, <laughs> touche, our new uh, sponsor. Thank you so much to Molecule for your 10% off your first AirP. Purifier order, visit Molecule, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com. And at the checkout, enter the code for the show, TechRev. that's T-E-C-H-R-E-V. And we'll be thinking about you. And Let me know how you like it. I want to thank our panelists, Heather Fetterman. Always wonderful to see you. Love the background. You've got great virtual art there. Appreciate that. Joe Jerome, love the passion, and we appreciate your being here. Sarah Collins, such a pleasure to meet you. We're so happy. And, and Joe, thank you for engaging Sarah for us. And Kenisa Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. And we love your background, too. Some kind of a very, very uh, fancy white screen behind you. We appreciate that. Thank you to Ryan Treasure, our engineer, my co-producer today. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, signing off. And a get well to Aaron Keller, our engineer, who is out sick. Aaron, get better. We miss you. So thank you for tuning in to Technology Revolution. the future of now. Remember, the future of now didn't happen yet, and we're all a part of making it happen. Let's make it a good one. Signing off, be safe, be smart, be well, and try to be happy. Bye-bye